All right, well, if you have your Bible, let's turn together to uh, Genesis chapter 27 as we continue together through Genesis and this morning, uh, verses 1 through 46. Uh, the, the verses are also printed out on that uh, sermon notes page. It's mostly for our kids so they can kind of quickly follow along if, they, uh, if I call out a verse or say something about a text or passage uh, so they don't have to flip as fast as uh, we might be able to as adults, but uh, that's there for you as well. So Genesis chapter number 27, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered him, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to me, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were, which were uh, with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats, uh, she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may fill you, my son. I do not know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and said, uh, uh, he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate. And he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out in the presence of Isaac, his father, 
Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise in need of his son's game, that he may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came. And I've blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. Then, uh, what then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of, the he- of, of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Rise, flee to Laban my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? to me. And all of God's people say to these words, Amen. Well, there they were on uh, center stage for all to see, so to speak. Uh, The spotlight squarely placed on them. The father was getting up in years, 137 to be exact. You can imagine an old man. He was very weak and he had become blind. And he thought his death was imminent. So what did he do? He called for his favorite son, his pride and joy, his firstborn. It was time to make his last will and testament. On the side of the stage, so to speak, the wife was eavesdropping because she had her favorite son too. She conspired against her husband's wishes to trick him by using her favorite son. How? She prepared for her favorite son a disguise, a costume. But he wasn't innocent. Let's not think that it was merely the mom. He added insult to injury. 
lying several times, taking God's name in vain. Of course, this caused sheer horror for the father, but even more so for the oldest son, who then plotted his little brother's murder. No, this isn't a rerun on uh, network television of an old Jerry Springer show. Dr. Phil, uh, or maybe uh, next year's holiday romantic comedy, right? This is the story of Holy Scripture. And it's not just any old family, but a family of faith. And not just any old family of faith, but the family of faith. The covenant family through whom our Lord Jesus Christ would come. And so we learn again from the story of Genesis that the story of the Bible is very simple. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. And in fact, God uses sinners to save sinners. And as we come back to the story of Genesis this morning, we jump right back into this, into this drama, this family drama. Abraham and Sarah are dead. Isaac and Rebekah are getting up in very old years. And their twins now, Esau and Jacob, are front and center uh, in the story here. And I want you to think with me this morning here in Genesis 27, this theme of salvation through sinfulness. Salvation through sinfulness. The Lord continues his plan of salvation. While using sinful people, he's chosen to bring that salvation about. May the Lord open up our eyes and open up our hearts this morning to believe The result of this salvation through sinfulness is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's also believe this morning that God still saves sinners, even sinners like us, like you, like me. Let us believe that God can still even use sinners to bring other sinners to come to know the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we see here is very obvious. The story is a, is, is a re-presentation of this covenant family's problems. Recall that after Esau and Jacob's birth, the narrative revealed to us back in chapter 25 uh, a family problem. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. 25 verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because Esau was the family chef. He was a hunter. Uh, He prepared the meat and the meals. Uh, He he sliced it up. He diced it up. And he presented it in a a way that was appealing uh, to all the senses, the eyes and the nose, and especially uh, the sensation of taste. And he loved his son because he loved what his son gave him, his firstborn son. He hunted. He was a manly man. He was a hairy man. And he was a great chef uh, to boot. Rebecca loved Jacob, though, we were told. Now, on the one hand, we can understand Isaac's favoritism, his deep, deep love for Esau, uh, because God promised... Through him, he would have a son. And for, him, and for how many years did Isaac pray for a son? 
How many years? We saw that a couple, uh, a couple of Sundays ago. How many years was Isaac in prayer for a son? He was praying for 20 years. So we can understand that, 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 that he loved this firstborn of the twins more because he had been praying for 20 years and added to that, of course, the, the pride and joy, right? The pride and joy of that son who hunted and who, who cooked and who, uh, and who chased animals and killed them and looked like a man. Of course, he, he loved him more. This is sort of for all of us who have a firstborn son. You know, we have that sort of pride and joy uh, in the firstborn son. Uh, but we shouldn't, you know, choose favorites here. Um, but yet, we're sinners, right? And, and this family of faith also uh, full of sinners. The problems that were exasperated. Uh, when, when Jacob took advantage, we saw two Sundays ago, took advantage of his older brother's exhaustion. Esau goes out, he hunts, he has a long day on the trail, uh, he's tired, he brings back the animals that he had killed, that he had cleaned, uh, that he was now going to cook. He was tired, he was exhausted. Jacob took advantage of Esau's exhaustion, as well as Esau's very flippant attitude towards his birthright. And so Jacob made him uh, uh, an, an uneven deal, right? An uneven deal. I'll give you some of the food that I've prepared, this stew of lentils and a little bit of bread that I, that I prepared with mom's help in the, in the kitchen today. If you would just give me your birthright. Esau, not a very spiritual-minded man takes the deal, right? He takes the deal. What's a birthright to me? I'm starving to death here. I need some food. The family clearly has issues. This family clearly has issues, right? There's no one in this room that can identify, right? (laughs) This, This gives us great hope, doesn't it? This gives all of us great hope. Uh, God isn't pleased with these sinners' sins and schemes and plots and plans, but yet here is God, but God, showing his abundant mercy and his abundant love for his own promises and for his own son, our Lord Jesus, that he uses the plots, the plans, the sins, the schemes of these sinners to bring about salvation Despite them, despite them, but yet in full view of them. It's despite the sins of this family that our Lord comes. And it's in full view of the sins of this family that our Lord brings salvation to you and to me. So there's great hope for us here. We read the story and we can identify with uh, different characters here, can't we? But overall, we can identify with the reality that God saves sinners despite our sins, despite our squabbles amongst our families, despite some families being full of faith, but yet squabbles, despite many of our families being, uh, being families of mixed faith or families of faith and no faith, there's great hope for us in Jesus Christ. Now, notice in our story, the problems, though, continue to grow. One problem leads to another. Isaac think that, uh, thinks that he's at the end of his life. Right? He thinks he's about to die, and so he's, he tells his son, go out, get some game prepared for me, make me my best meal, your, your best meal, my favorite food. I'm going to give you my blessing, my last will and testament. I'm about to die. 
Actually, do you know how old he was when he died? The story goes on to tell us how old he was when he actually died. Well, he's 137 in the story here. But how old was he when he actually died? 180. This guy's melodramatic. He's got 43 more years to go, right? 43 more years to live. But, you know, I'm going to die. Bring me my favorite food, right? He's weak. He's going blind, such as it is. And he wants to eat one great last meal, right? One final meal from his favorite son of his favorite food and so forth. So much for the, these patriarchs, right? Uh, again, we, we see here that they're not merely these, these great heroes, these great fathers of the faith, uh, these spiritual giants. They're, they're men, they're women, they're sinners, they're human beings just like me and you. His desire is on his stomach, right? On his taste buds. He wants one last meal before he gives the last will and testament. And uh, the word that Isaac uses there in verse number four about Esau's food that he loves uh, speaks a very passionate desire. A very passionate desire. I mean, think of that one meal that, that you love most. It's the last meal on earth that you want to taste before you enter glory and you get to pick from that tree of life. Right? The, that one last meal of an earthly meal before you eat of that heavenly reality uh, that is to come. It's a passionate desire that he has for Esau's food. Uh, and he wants it one more time, or at least as he thinks, one more time. Uh, and notice all that's in the context here of, of pronouncing this blessing upon Esau uh, in verse 4. Now, what's interesting is, is we, we, we can't miss the context here of this blessing here, right? Uh, especially when we read of Esau's response about another blessing, right? Don't you have another blessing, a second blessing for me as well? Uh, and Isaac refuses to give that, uh, that second blessing a little bit later in the story. Uh, this oral will, this last will and testament, uh, was legally binding in, in this ancient world in which our story lives and, and moves and has its being. Uh, contrary uh, to us, for the most part, you know, we, we, we do have oral wills and last wills and testaments uh, in our time. Uh, we call it a deathbed will. Uh, and, uh, but, but yet, pretty much every state uh, in, in the U.S. has very limited, very limited times in which a deathbed will uh, is binding, uh, is applicable, and actually is enforced to keep you out of probate court and so forth. But in this world in which our story takes place, these words are binding. That's why he can't give a second blessing. That's why he can't renounce the first blessing uh, to Jacob and then give it to Isaac, right? He's already given it. These words have authority. Uh, they have force. And they are legally binding uh, and to be enacted. And so uh, we see then, uh, as he, he, he's in the, in the context of this oral blessing, this last will and testament, this passing down the family line, the family blessings and so forth, uh, we then see Rebecca's scheme. Verses 5 through 13. And then Jacob's complicity, verse 14 and following. She's, she's there eavesdropping, we're told. Listening in at the, somewhere around the tent, we, we can imagine. What's he saying? Why is he saying it? What's going to happen? It's interesting that, uh, that, that Jacob uh, 
he, he honors his mother, doesn't he? Listen to my voice, obey my voice, and so forth. He honors his mother's will, but only to dishonor his dad, right? So we see here the fifth commandment. Uh, what would become the fifth commandment? Uh, he, he's violating that already, uh, as it will become that commandment later. Uh, so he's, he's honoring mother, but yet dishonoring father. You, you see her scheming and her plotting and her planning and, and her conniving and, and massaging the situation. We see Jacob's lies and in verses 18 and 24. Notice that he lies there. He takes God's name in vain. Uh, verse number 20. So there's at least three commandments here that will become the commandments uh, that Jacob uh, and Rebekah uh, are guilty of violating so that they can get this oral will. Isaac and Esau reveal the truth about Jacob in verses 35 to 6. Your brother came deceitfully. Is he not rightly named Jacob, the heel grabber? He's cheated me these two times. He got the birthright because I took the lentil stew and now he gets the blessing because he and mom tricked dad. And I thought my family had drama, right? And issues. Now it's easy for us to focus on the characters here, right? Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau. It's easy for us to just merely focus on their actions and their let their, their, their lack of godliness and so forth. And it's easy for us to just kind of want to focus on that and, and make sort of, uh, you know, little applications. But we've got to remember that all this is happening in the context of what God is doing. God's saving plan. History, right, is God's story. It's his story. Uh, this, this, this redemptive plan uh, is what is going on here. We have these actors on the stage, but really it's God's. It's God who's the protagonist in the story. Uh, God is, so to speak, the leading man. He's on center stage. It looks like Jacob and Esau and Rebekah and Isaac, but it's really it's what God is doing here. Right? It's their, their actions, their lack of actions and so forth. They're, they're all being used by God and God's wisdom. It's a part of God's greater plan and purpose. And so, as we see then this, this family's problems, and their, their drama, their struggles, their sins, their failings, their ups, their downs, uh, notice that leads us to, to two things about God here. What is God doing in this drama, right? In this mess of a family. Notice, first of all, his providence. So, uh, secondly, the second point, but the first thing that God is doing here, we, we, God is revealing his providence. God's revealing to us in the story his own providence. Kids, you, you all know what the providence of God is. I, I trust from uh, Heidelberg Catechism that we, we recite and we memorize what is the providence of God. See, do you know that? I know. Okay, I won't actually do it in front of everybody, but, but I know you know it. Right? It's the almighty, ever-present power of God. By which he upholds the heavens, the earth, and all creatures. And he so moves them that nothing comes by chance, but all things come from our Father's fatherly hands. This is almighty and everywhere present power. 
to uphold all things, right? To, to, to sustain all things, to will all things towards his great will, his great purpose. Now, we say that in our catechism. Why? Because of, because of, the, of stories like this. Uh, we, we say that because of passages like, for example, Job, chapter 42, where he confesses to God at the end of his experience of God's providential care, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's providence. God can do all things and nothing can hinder that purpose, that plan. Or Paul's words in Ephesians 1 verse 11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Great God, one hymn says, great God, thy providence and care, I see and find them everywhere. Thy providence and care, I see them everywhere. God's great power and purpose is here on display. But there's a problem with this, isn't there? The mental problem for us, there's sort of a theological problem, there's a philosophical problem, a very practical problem. So if God works all things according to the counsel of his will, uh, if God can do all things and nothing can thwart his purpose, if God is in charge of the story here, what about all the sin? I mean, if, God, if this is a story of what God is doing, what does that say about sin? We see the sins here, the story. But yet we're saying that God is the one who in his providence is orchestrating and, and moving and, and, and guiding behind the scenes by his invisible hand. It's God who's doing all this, but, but what about sin? And there's plenty of it, as you see here, to go around in the story. In fact, although it may look like God approves of sin in our story, or at least that he does nothing about it, the very life of Jacob is an implicit denunciation of his tactics. While Genesis says of Abraham and Isaac that they lived a good old age, Genesis 25 and 35, of Jacob it says his days were few and evil. Yet, yet, God uses his sinful people as opportunities to further his own plan. And so we sometimes we, we make theological distinctions. How is it that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, but yet God is not the author nor can be charged with sin? Well, we speak of God's providence sometimes as an active or a passive providence, uh, sometimes a decretive will or a permissive will. God decrees uh, the end from the beginning, but yet God also permits. He permits things. He doesn't approve of the sins here, but knowing that these are sinful people, and he, yet he's going to use all their choices and decisions for his purpose. No, they can't even afford it. Jacob's schemes, Rebecca's schemes, their lies, their taking God's name in vain, their plots... Esau's ungodliness as the firstborn son. Isaac's foolishness cannot thwart what God is going to do. The younger will 
serve the old man. Didn't God already say that? God has said that. Well, how's it going to happen? Somehow in the power and the providence and the purpose, the plan, the will of God, the wisdom of God, the grace of God even, Esau and Jacob and their relationship is going to be turned on its head so that God's purpose and plan stands. Don't, don't forget what Romans 9 said. We read that last uh, two Sundays ago. Uh, when, when Paul was telling, the, uh, telling uh, the Jews in the first century why it is that they don't believe that the Lord is the Messiah. And it gives them reasons and he explains to them, well, not all who are uh, children of the promise are uh, the children, right? Not all Israel are Israel. And he goes on to say that the, this whole story is about God's grace, that it's not about him who wills or who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Before either Jacob or Esau had done anything good or evil, God had already purposed and planned, Jacob, I love, Esau, I hate it. Right? He has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens whom he will. Look at the Pharaoh. So God is in control here, and yet we see these sinful, these sinful vessels, these sinful human beings. Think about it like this. When God spoke to Rebekah about Jacob being the son of promise, do we really believe that she never told this promise to her husband? But there he was, playing favorites, seeking to bless the wrong son in direct violation of God's plan. On the other hand, Rebecca should have trusted God to work out his plan without resorting to sin to bring about that plan. And Jacob, well, right? Jacob's Jacob in the story. We, we know who he is. If God actually, in some mysterious way that is beyond our thoughts, purposed everything and used everything in our story for his glory. For his purpose. Right? We can see that. We, the Lord says there are twins in the womb and uh, the older is going to serve the younger and they know that promise. But yet when it comes down to it, he feels like he's about to die and he hasn't seen that sort of upheaval, that turning upside down of the, the order of their birth to what God has said is going to happen, he takes matters into his own hands. And he tells Esau to go make a, make, make a meal, uh, that he's going to bless Esau. And then, the, the, uh, uh, then Rebekah, hearing that, of course, schemes, plots, plans, and then Jacob takes part in it as well. They're, they're all, uh, there, there's no one here who's innocent. But God. Right? But God. God is good. He created all things good in the beginning. He governs all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Despite, despite our human fallenness and our sinfulness, God is not the author of sin. God cannot be charged with sin. God is good. He is wiser than us. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are beyond our ways. All that God does is just. Right? We've seen that in the story of Abraham. God is just. Will he not do justice in the earth? God is a God of righteousness and justice and perfection. He is not a sinner. He cannot sin. He cannot cause sin. He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. He's righteous. He's good. But yet God, because he is so so omnipotent, so all-powerful, because he is so all-good, he can actually turn 
uh, and twist and use all the turns and twists of fallen human beings for a good, glorious purpose. Our Belgian Confession of Faith in Article 13 explains all these things, and it tells us when it comes down to it, we are not, uh, as we try to understand this, that we are not to engage in speculation, but adoration. Not speculation, but adoration. Just to honor God and to worship God and say, God, your ways are beyond our ways. Your thoughts are beyond our thoughts. Who's ever given to God that he should repay him? From him, to him, and through him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We shouldn't speculate about how these things can be. How God can be God and how people can uh, use their their uh, 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 use their will towards sin, but yet how God can somehow we can say God wills all things and purposes all things, but yet He's not the author of sin. We just adore God. We adore Him, right? We don't talk back to God. Romans nine says we are merely clay. We we simply say to God uh, that He's the Potter. He has the right over us. He can do whatever He wants, and we worship Him because He's made us in His image. That means for us something, doesn't it? That God is a God of providence. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He's all-wise. He's all-good. He's all-just. That means something for us. This means that we must trust God's providence to care for us in all circumstances. We, if we can say, if we can kind of conceive with our minds and we can say with our mouths that, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, we can say those things very easily because the Bible says it. But then when it comes down to it, how about... Does, does God working all things, does that mean all of your particular circumstances? It's easy for us to say God works all things because it's just sort of a, a catch-all category, right? Sort of an ethereal thing. But is it true that God works all things in all of your circumstances? Does he work all things together for good? For those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. If you believe that, cling to that promise. Cling to that promise. Cling to the promise that God works all things according to the counsel of his will for your good. Cling to that promise like it's life itself. Every circumstance, every trial, every doubt, every hardship, uh, every evil done to you, every injustice that you experience... God works all things according to the counsel of his will for those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. Amen? Every circumstance. Every circumstance. We learn from the story that, that we need to be aware of God's providence in every little aspect of our lives. How is God using this circumstance to his glory and for my good? How can God redeem this injustice, this wickedness, this evil, this slander, whatever it is? How can God redeem this, what's happened to me, for my good? When someone sinfully and unjustly says something about you, it could be an opportunity to examine your own heart. It could be a chance to confess your own legitimate sin. But also, it's a time to confess God in his plan has enabled me to suffer with Jesus. 
to suffer with Christ, to partake of unjust accusations, to suffer in my body, to suffer in my soul, because God is good. One old hymn says like this, Commit thou all your griefs and ways into his hands, to his sure truth and tender care, who earth and heaven commands, who points the clouds their course, whom winds and seas obey. He shall direct your wandering feet. He shall prepare your way. It goes on to say this, Far, far above your thought his counsel shall appear, when fully he the work has wrought that caused your needless fear. Leave to his sovereign sway to choose and to command with wonder filled. Then you, uh, then you hail own how wise, how strong his hand. God in his providence here is orchestrating this story, all of its drama, all of its ups and downs. He's, he's doing this for, for his glory and for their good and for ultimately the good of the world, for us. But he's using these sinners, these sinful vessels, these jars of clay to bring to us that, that inestimable treasure, our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, and just very quickly, from this story here of all these ups and downs, this family drama and all the sins we see in it, we see not just the providence of God here and orchestrating, overseeing and, and leading and guiding and governing all things, but also God is reaffirming his promise. God's reaffirming here his own gospel promise. It's not enough for us to think of God's providence, uh, and even, uh, dare we say that word, predestination, right? It's not enough for us to think that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Those thoughts must lead us always back to the promises of the gospel. That's what it means, not to speculate but to live in adoration towards God. When we think of God's providence over every circumstance of my life and how it is that God could have predestined that and foreseen that and and so forth and so forth, that is meant to lead you not continually upward into an abyss that you can never uh, reach, but it's meant to lead you to Christ. To lead you to Christ. After all, it was our Lord Jesus Christ who was delivered up by sinful men according to the purpose, the definite purpose and foreknowledge of God. Predestination, providence, election, these things are always meant to point us to Jesus Christ. And so here is a reaffirmation of God's promise. Don't forget, God chose Abram, Abraham. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God has chosen Jacob over Esau before they had done anything good or evil. Even when Isaac thought he was blessing Esau, his words very prophetically spoke of God's promise through Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Let people serve you, verse 29 says, and nations bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, blessed be everyone who blesses you. Isaac was reaffirming God's promise to Abraham back in Abraham, Genesis 22, and all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, the story began. Here is the Lord's promises, reaffirmed, reasserted, and even using these sinful men and their, their schemes, and it all somehow, all of it somehow works out for the glory of God. History is God's story. 
that promise of Genesis 3.15 that there was going to be a seed of the woman to come to crush the seed of the serpent, that promise is moving forward despite the obstacles of the world, the devil, and even our own human sinful flesh, our sinfulness. God's promise to bring a savior to crush the devil, that promise is going to come regardless of what the the unbelieving world puts in the way of it and even our own believing sinful selves might happen to put in the way of it. That's what we see here. God's great promise. And so our story is one of salvation that comes to the world through sinfulness. All the plans of Satan, all the plans of the world, all the plans of our sins cannot withstand, cannot withhold, cannot block God's redemptive plan. That's why he's the hero of the story. That's why he's the one who's doing the work here. Because of this, the scriptures can say, for example, to us in Isaiah 54, verse 17, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, shall succeed. Or Paul can say to us in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, the promise of God, and the purpose and providence of God here are what matters, not the sins, not the family drama. As much as that might be interesting to us and we might identify with the story, it's what what God is doing here. It's what God is doing here. And we see how amazing this is that through the sinfulness of Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, even Esau, but how much more impressive was God's work in bringing salvation through sinfulness ultimately in our Lord Jesus Christ against whom the, the sin of the world the sinfulness of our human flesh, the sinfulness of the devil, took their great stand. So believe today that God is powerful and able to save sinners. He's able to save you. He's already shown that. He's able to save your dearest friend and loved one and co-worker and neighbor and so forth. He's able to save them too. And he's even able to use you to bring that salvation to them. If he can use us, he could use these patriarchs. If he can use these patriarchs, he can certainly use us. You see, God is a good God, and he wants, he desires to bring the world to salvation, to bring uh, that whole host of heaven, that family that, that cannot even be numbered, to bring them to know him. Yes, in Christ, but through you and through me. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you and we bless you for your amazing love and grace and your purpose, orchestrating the history of the world to bring Jesus to us. And Lord, now, you still, in, uh, in that very providence, you are still working all things out for your glory and for our good. Help us, Lord, to see that with eyes of faith this morning, uh, to, to see that uh, you are a good God and you can turn anything, anything to good. And Father, we pray that as we embrace the gospel for ourselves, that that would also lead us, Lord, in in humility and in great confidence at the same time uh, in you to know that you can save, Lord, the most lost sinner uh, in our lives. Empower us, 
Lord, to share the good news that God saves sinners and that there's nothing that we can do to thwart your great purpose. Uh, You are God. Uh, Lord, uh, we are merely uh, the dust. We're merely the clay. Use us, we pray. We ask this all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen.